0: let 's pray, <coughs> gracious Lord, we are grateful to be here today on this Tuesday to resume our journey through first Corinthians and you bless us by calling us here. you bless us by the giving of this the this scripture and, and paul's letter. Um, there are some challenging portions today. Help us to to read them truthfully, to be honest with ourselves to to, to grasp and understand and that they were written for people who lived a long time ago and help us to see what they might uh, mean for us today. All this we pray in Jesus' name, Amen. Okay friends, so we are in the fifth chapter of 1 Corinthians. And last week, the final section that we talked about was the section about the fellow in the church in Corinth who is having sex with his father's wife. Remember that? His father's wife. And and there's no red box today that I could find. I don't know why. Anyway, so... um, He is having sex with his father's wife and that is that is making Paul's head spin on his shoulders and in addition it doesn't seem that anyone cares because the place that it seems the Corinthian Christians have gotten themselves to is the idea that they are so free in Christ this new spiritual life that they can do anything they want and their bodies don't really matter and so like anything goes, just like just like the old Broadway show, anything goes, and um, and Paul is just Paul is just appalled appalled by it, and Paul urges them to have this man leave the house church remember they don't meet in big churches like ours they meet in house churches 20 25 30 people maybe and and just just send him out of the community now paul says he wants them to do this you would almost think paul would say this do this so that the community is protected because that's kind of Paul's viewpoint on almost everything, is do whatever builds up the body of Christ, avoid whatever tears down the body of Christ, do whatever is a good witness to Jesus, avoid what is a bad witness to Jesus. But that isn't what he says. What he says, hand the mat over to Satan, which means the outside world, because a way to think of the age to come is the age of Satan for the Jews, and um, so that he might yet be saved. That, that the disciplining of this man is a path that Paul hopes will lead to repentance and to salvation for this man, that he can be brought back into the body of Christ. Um, Paul has a strong sense that there is, that the church is the body of Christ and there's a bright line um, between the body of Christ and the outside world. Um, I think in our time that line is much dimmer, in part because I think we live at having had 2,000 years of a Christian ethic behind our society, um, generating all sorts of values and beliefs and the rest of it among people. Um, But in Paul's world, the Christian community and the life they are called to, the life that he wants to help them shape is vastly different than the life of the pagan world and we're going to talk about that today in different ways because if you don't get that you're not going to understand what paul is talking about if you think he would write exactly the same thing to the church in plano in 2022 (laughs) isn't it bad when you have to stop and think about what year it is 2022 you know, you're, you're getting off on the wrong foot with this. So, um, and, and then Paul talks about, we, we did this last week, um, in verse 6, he says, Your boasting is a good, don't you know that a little yeast leavens the whole batch of dough? Now, I'm not a baker. I, I eat a lot of baked goods, but I don't bake those goods. So ye- yeast and stuff, that kind of leaves me a little cold. So you could think of it as, as as a cancer, right? A cancer in the human body needs to be dealt with, or it just grows and grows and consumes and consumes and ends up leading, leading to what? To death, right? So, um, and Paul said, you know, this is what can happen in these house churches this is what can happen with this man these house churches are called to be very different from the world around them and Paul is going to insist upon them actually doing that not paying lip service to it actually doing that actually living those kinds of lives, lives actually being 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 holy being set apart um, and he pulls Passover in, in, the second part of that paragraph um, that we talked, this is kind of where we ended last week, um, in verse 8. He pulls Passover into that. Because Paul is Jewish, he's a Pharisee in Passover, which is which is um, all about f- deliverance fr- from oppressors, um, is what the Christian community is about. Deliverance from... Yes, uh, the oppression of sin, but also deliverance from, from um, the larger oppressors in, in the pagan world. And so when, when he pulls Passover, in, it also reminds us, as Christians, we are called to... We are called to the Old Testament. We are called to the Hebrew Scriptures. We're called to read them. We're called to understand them. You get a little note like this from Paul and you understand why in the second century, when the Christians were offered the opportunity to dump the Old Testament, they didn't do it. There was a leader in the community in Rome that wanted to get rid of the Old Testament. He says, "I I don't find the God of love there, you know? And so he said, we need to get rid of that. But the Christians wisely said no, because Jesus would only make sense in the context of where the Law and the Prophets and the Writings, where God was bringing all of this. So, look at verse 9 now. This is really where we're starting today. He says, I wrote to you in my letter. Hmm, isn't that interesting? So is this the first letter he wrote to the Corinthians? No, No, obviously not. Do we have that letter? Not to our knowledge. There are those who will make the case that a portion of the letter known as 2 Corinthians is at least a portion of this earlier letter. But it just reminds us that what you have in your New Testament are writings that were passed from community to community and community, but they're, they're never to be understood as Paul's complete writings, or Peter's, or any of them. These are the ones that were passed, they were preserved, they were saved, so that by the end of the first century, they begin to be shared as sacred scripture. And there were others that were, that were lost that we just don't have. If you ever want to write a fun novel, see, you could write a novel about finding that earlier letter and the stuff that's in it. So, he says, I wrote to you in my letter not to associate with sexually immoral people. Okay, sexually immoral people. So we're going to talk about that for a few minutes because it's an entree into understanding Paul's world and, and the Greek here a little bit. It is difficult for us to get in touch with Paul's teachings around sexuality because our world is structured very differently than theirs. For example, in our world, you're kind of married or you're not, okay? Because we have legal systems and we have lawyers and judges and we have right. This is what marriage is and. But in the ancient world, there were like seven or eight different arrangements that were sort of viewed as marriage because only certain people could actually legally get married. Slaves could not legally marry each other. So there were different arrangements that were recognized and, and conferred different benefits and so forth on them, which made the concept of adultery challenging. Right? Because as I've told you last week, I think, that in the Greco Roman world, a man could have sex wherever, whenever he wanted it, with anyone he wanted it, male or female, so long as that person is not the wife of another man. That was it. Other than that, anything went. Okay? And it's a very over-sexualized world, very. There was a a festival in the springtime in the Greco-Roman world called Floriana. And during the festival of Floriana, there were live sex acts performed just as part of the big celebration. And they would have parades and they would have floats and other things that they would carry through the streets. And some of these had giant (laughs) male parts. (laughs) Right, male parts, if you know what I mean on them. I, it's just, and, and people knew that, you know, their sons and daughters needed to be protected, but it's, it's it, it really goes along with the lines that this is a very violent society. They did go to arenas to see people get killed. It is true that when the Colosseum was open, they had games at the Colosseum for, Three months and it's estimated that 10,000 people were killed in the course of those games. Can you imagine such a thing? I can't imagine su- su- such a thing. Did it only happen in Rome? No, it happened throughout the Empire. There were little arenas and coliseums and other little places around the Empire where these games meant to keep the people entertained happened. It's violent, it's, it's sexual, it's not, it's not a world very much like ours because yeah we can complain about society and the things that happen and we can say "Oh, the world is falling apart today and where's the country going and all that kind of stuff but you have to get to a total different understanding of what that Greco-Roman world was like now the Greek word underneath this word um, sexually immoral and underneath the word um, fornication, which is a word I grew up with, what I was taught was that what that word meant was that was having sex outside marriage, period. Which again, for their world, gets complicated. So Paul uses this word pornea a lot. Okay, that's, that's the word right here. A form of the word pornea is what is translated sexually immoral. Now, what the word pornea actually is. In a very straightforward way is prostitution. The word "portaday" is a prostitute. Um, there's a young, now nah, she's not young, well she's young compared to me, <laughs> but there's a woman who is a scholar that I feel like I've learned a lot from who is named Sarah Rudin. She is not a New Testament scholar, she is not a biblical scholar, she is a Christian, she's actually a Quaker I think, Well, what she has made her academic career in, she is a classicist, which means she made an academic career, and has been making it, of being immersing herself in the ancient Greek and ancient Latin classics, and translating them into English. She has uh, one of her big landmark ones was her translation of Virgil's Aeneid. And what that means is that she has to know the, the ancient world and the language and the words and what they all mean in a way that the rest of us don't. And honestly, even a lot of New Testament scholars who know their Greek, they're working on different things than the, what she works on. So she said, well, I'm going to sit down with Paul and I'm going to start reading Paul as a classicist. And I'm just going to start reading it with what I know about how the people on the street in this world would read these things. And she said, Polonia, that's an easy one. It means prostitute. That's it. It means prostitute. But Paul uses it in different contexts, and it raises the question, Is what is he talking about? Okay, So, he does use it very specifically sometimes to refer to prostitution, but he uses it a lot in a more general context. And she makes the case, and boy, this has always hit home to me. She says, she, she says, prostitutes in this world were slaves. They were almost always slaves. And they were, you know, bought bought and, bought and sold and, and, and purchased for an hour with their master or however it might be. And they were essentially objects to be purchased. And she said that the, the, Um, this understanding that treating people as objects whether in sexuality or otherwise is really completely against the gospel and completely against what it means to love God and to love others she says you know that we need to think about that being what Paul has in mind here what Paul has in mind is treating people as objects, treating women as objects. I, I, I can remember in the 60s, people started talking about this when I was a teenager, about not objectifying women. Remember? Mm-hmm. I don't hear people talk, about, I don't know what they talk about now. But, <laughs> but, but that's the idea. And so it has a meaning for, sexu- for sexual acts, but it has a larger meaning as well. i worked in corporate America for a long time. A lot of people there are basically objects in the eyes of the corporation. So and so is a spreadsheet spreadsheet person. So and so is this. So and so is this, and they're not really valued as whole people, or at least when I worked in corporate America. So, so there's a there's this larger sense that he is leading this community away from in the body of christ we do not treat each other as objects whether it's sexual or otherwise and i think that's pretty powerful and i think she's on to something so he says i wrote to you in my letter not to associate with sexually immoral people and it is the immediate context is sexuality, and it's an over sexualized world. And he goes on to say, not at all meaning the people of this world who are immoral or the greedy and swindlers or idolaters. In that case, you would have to leave this world. The this is are a little bit confusing, but what he's saying is that he is drawing this bright line again. He isn't going to talk, he isn't talking to them about the lar- all the stuff that's wrong in the larger world. He's talking to them about what's wrong in the body of Christ, what's going on in these house churches, and calling them to be holy. And notice there are, he has a list of five, five things, four things. Immoral, sexually immoral, greedy, swindlers, idolaters, right? He's just saying that behavior is, has no place in the body of Christ. He says, But now I am writing to you that you must not associate with anyone who claims to be a brother or sister, but is sexually immoral or greedy, an idolater or slanderer, a drunkard or swindler. We have a longer list. Is it a complete list? It's not a complete list. I don't know. I think I, get, I, think I understand what he's saying. He said There are ways... To live, this was part of my sermon this weekend. There are ways to live that are consistent with how God created us to live. And it begins with loving God and loving others and beginning to work out what that really means in life, in action. Okay? And these things sexually immoral, treating people as objects, if you might, greedy, idolatry, slandering, drunkenness, swindlers they have no place in that. None of those fit with with loving my neighbor. If if I want to if I want to if, if if I'm going to love my neighbor, I really shouldn't set out to swindle them of their money. Is that hard? Is that difficult? I don't know why people find Paul off putting. That's not challenging to me. I hear him. Now you know it sort of gets back to what we talked about last week when when we live in a time when people are so focused on do not judge lest you be judged that we're just end up being blinded to things. Of course Christians shouldn't behave like this. And Paul is serious about it. He says don't if somebody claims to be a brother or sister, but they're defrauding people. Don't have anything to do with them. I personally think that's good advice. That's good teaching. That's sound. You know, when Robert Tilton was exposed, he he left that church. Good. This isn't... He, Paul's going to talk more about, about discipline and, and churches and so forth, but Um, The worst scandal in my lifetime in the Christian Church worldwide are the priestly abuses in the Catholic Church. Okay. And not only did they harm the victims It harmed the priests, who didn't get the help that they needed, perhaps. It didn't, and it was a terrible, terrible witness to the truth of Jesus and the truth of the Gospel. Um, In the past few weeks, uh, the Southern Baptist Convention wrapped up an investigation, a couple of years long, into sexual abuses of the Southern Baptist Convention and they found over 700 instances in the Southern Baptist Convention of sexual abuse that had been covered up, people had been moved on quietly and all that kind of thing that you can imagine. So, so no, no corner of the body of Christ is immune but we live in a time in which people are, are kind of unwilling to confront it um, okay, so Paul, all right, so now verse twelve he says, what business business is it of mine to judge those outside the church it is it he doesn't really view that as what he's about remember there's two things that Paul wants to accomplish he wants to build up the church and and, and have those churches be a good witness to others. That drives everything. So he doesn't view himself as the one who is there to revolutionize the entire world. He is there to preach the gospel, and to create these colonies of a human race, and to help them to be colonies of a new human race. And so he says, What business is it of mine to judge those outside the church? Are you not to judge those inside God will judge those outside. And then he says, quoting Deuteronomy, Paul's a Jew, very much totally embedded in the Hebrew Scriptures, in the Torah, you know, expel the wicked person from among you. It's from the book of Deuteronomy. It was back then in Deuteronomy, it was about trying to keep the people of God um, set apart from the world different from the world around them so that they could be the ones through whom all the world would be blessed and it's really the same thing now and that's how that's how Paul that's how Paul sees it and remember they're not they're not in 7000 person churches they're in house churches of 20 or 25 it's like a big covenant group in a way and imagine some of the damage that could be done to the church or to the persons in such a small group. It's like I told you last week that John Wesley and his brother created holy clubs at Oxford of, you know, 15 people or so, who would, Christians who would try to hold each other accountable, to take seriously that accountability. And I'm sure there are instances when they took seriously the need to to have somebody, you know, leave the Holy Club. <laughs> um, so, but it is a challenge for us today. I, you know, some of you probably remember Bill Weber at Prestonwood, right? Went on for a, went on for a while. People knew what was happening. <laughs> Scared Andy half to death over here. <laughs> <laughs> <That was planned. laughs> you woke, I you woke Andy on. up. Okay, <laughs> so let me pause here to see if uh, if y'all have any questions or anything about this this section here. Rich. Well, it's interesting that it, it's very understandable the fledgling. Shunning sinners is is quite understandable. Today, I think the church is called to be more welcoming than people we all see. Churches are involved with 12-step programs for alcoholics. We are. There's 12-step programs, there's lots of ways. And the churches are stronger and more enduring today. Um, so where do you draw the lines? It was the leadership? Probably somebody should have been drawing some lines in the Southern Baptist Convention over the last 15 years. They should not have been sending on people who they knew were sexually abusive just to get them out of their hair and move them to a different church. Yeah. The Roman Catholics should not have done that. I mean, it's... it's The Roman Catholic Church is still here, but a lot of damage has been done to the witness of Christ in these kinds of things. Because it's like we're handing people reasons to avoid us. So somehow we have to, I guess Rich, grow in wisdom so we somehow can find our way between just running around shunning sinners because we all sin, right? And ignoring everything, which probably isn't, isn't healthy either and probably is why church killers have thrived. And most pastors could tell you stories of church killers who have thrived. So somewhere in there. Now, you know, I was thinking when I was working on this and trying to hear Paul well, that... Um, it would be interesting to ask robert hasley if over all these years if there was ever a time when he pulled somebody aside and suggested that they they find another church i don't know i you know i think i think the norms are pretty strong at st andrew about how people are to be but i do know that we have we've had You know, difficulties with a few people. So I don't know, Rich, I don't know. I don't know what to say. Um, Let me just read you something I found from Richard Hayes. And the reason I like Richard Hayes is because he is an honest interpreter of Paul's letters, and he's also a United Methodist Church elder. And he and his wife were hippies <laughs> at one time. They had lived in a commune in their 20s. And then he went to seminary, became an elder, took the pathway of um, the academic life, um, and uh, here's some of what he of what he wrote about this section, which is admittedly very challenging to us. He says, let us speak in terms of specific examples Only very recently has the Church begun to acknowledge instances of sexual abuse of women and children by Church leaders and members. The example of 1 Corinthians 5 should encourage us to name such violations for what they are and to exercise swift and severe discipline upon the offenders, which neither the Catholic Church nor the Southern Baptists did, and I'm sure if you investigated other denominations, you'd find some of the same thing, right? Insofar as the Church has failed in the past to deal forthrightly with such matters, it has been complicit in a conspiracy of silence." How many children were harmed by the silence of the Catholic Church? We all, we all know the stories, going you know, back to the big expose in, in, in the Boston paper. He says, um, We ought rather to have mourned and removed from our midst those who have done such things. And that's where, that's where it turns really hard, doesn't it? We may hope, as Paul did, that our disciplinary actions might have a transforming and healing effect for the offender, but it is certain that no healing is possible at all without clear public confrontation of the offense. We have somehow deluded ourselves into believing that the caring thing, he puts quotes on those, to do is to be infinitely non-judgmental and inclusive. And then he writes, this is quite simply a demonic lie. Wow! For it allows terrible cancerous abuses to continue unchecked in the community. Do we not know that a little cancer corrupts the whole body? Surgery is necessary. Clean out the cancer so that the body may be made whole. So, you know, fortunately I'm really not in the position of having to make decisions like this. But somehow things went terribly wrong in the Roman Catholic Church. Somehow things went terribly wrong at Mars Hill. That's the latest. Big one. Mars Hill. Big Mars Hill podcast. Um, big non up in the Northwest. Um, things went terribly wrong in the Southern Baptist Convention about the things that were tolerated and weren't called out. And what it resulted w- was that for many victims, they suffered abuse that should never have happened. In the sense that something should have been done much earlier. How that works, I don't know. I don't know. I, I won't profess to know. But for Paul in these house churches, he's 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 ready to confront it. Any other thoughts or questions on this? Anne, if that I can't hardly see that far. Yes. Could be. I mean, sometimes we could. I mean, Ann, Ann's asking me, is it, is it because sometimes we're afraid of dealing with conflict and confrontation? I think so. I, I think for me, I've got to, I, I hear Rich's voice all the time in my head. You know, who am I? Right? Really? But somehow, somehow, there are things that happen in the church body which should be dealt with and not swept under the rug. Could be the lack of trust and could be a lack of, you know, Hayes talks later, but he says part of this is because we don't really grasp that we are a spirit-filled community, that we are a community of the Lord Jesus Christ. And he thinks that if we were more confident about that, that we would see some of these things a bit differently. Maybe, maybe so. You know, it's Richard Hayes is just, it's just one man's opinion. But um, I can look, I, I guess I'm with those. Maybe Hayes, he's a, I think he's a little older than I am, actually. That when we look back over the last 10 and 20 and 30 years, there are things that should have been dealt with and weren't. And we need to somehow be able to make sure that it's not repeated again and again and again and again. Because we're not willing to confront it or because we don't want to judge anything, or we want to just simply care about the sinner. I mean, that, that was a Roman Catholic Church's, I'm going to say, excuse for this. They needed to care for the priests. And so they moved them around, right? And the result was years and years of more and more victims. I mean, I, I think that's pretty much what, that is what happened. So, yeah. And when they say, do want to Well, we, we sometimes do have to deal with reality, as Kathy is pointing out. Sure we do. But know. it's easy to not. But it's very, it's, it well, could be. Could be, Kathy. Okay, so let's move from that to the next little topic, which is also kind of like, well, what does this have to do with us in 2022? Chapter 6, verse 1. If any of you has a dispute with another, do you dare take it? Do you dare take it before the ungodly for judgment instead of before the Lord's people? What he's going to talk about is, in disputes among believers in these house churches, he's appalled that they are heading to the Roman courts. That's, that's, that, that's, that's the view. Or do you not know that the Lord's people will judge the world? And if you were to judge the world, are you not competent to judge trivial cases? Do you not know that we will judge angels? How much more the things of this life? Therefore, if you have disputes about such matters, do you ask for a ruling from those whose way of life is scorned in the church? The way of the pagans? I say this to shame you. Paul is a very direct person. This matters so much to him. It matters so... Paul is not a man filled with indifference which I think is a trap we can all fall into. He says, I say this to shame you. Is it possible that there is nobody among you wise enough to judge a dispute between believers? But instead, one brother takes another to court. And this is then in front of unbelievers. There is the community of God's people, the community of Jesus, and then there is the bright line and the rest of the world, and Paul thinks they need to deal with these things themselves so just so you know that Paul is not alone in this turn to Matthew chapter 18 verse 15 Matthew chapter 18 verse 15 1815 Now, this is, this is back to the sin issue, but they're kind of wrapped up together, I think. It's about how do things get handled? Disputes, whatever. Chapter 18, verse 15. If your brother or sister... This is Jesus. I happen to have a red-letter Bible here, so it's red. If your brother or sister sins, go and point out their fault Um, and then look down at verse 20. He says, For where two or three gather in my name, there I am with them. So again, it's two thousand years ago. These people are meeting in, in in house churches of twenty or twenty-five. We meet in these gigantic structures, seven thousand people here at St. Andrew. What could this possibly have to do with us? Y- yes. He did. So I see I have a problem here. How can he say, get rid of them? You're no better than a tax collector. And then he brings them in and has dinner with them. What why do, the, why does do, why does why does Jesus when Jesus has dinner with the tax collectors, what is his goal? To bring them in. Bring them in right? Because it's it's an invitation. And he welcomes them, right? Right? That doesn't diminish the fact that in the Christian community there are Christians formed into these little communities who are striving to live these holy lives apart from the world around them. And all Jesus is saying is, you know, if, if these people don't stop, if the swindler continues to go around and insist upon trying to find old women, old men in the congregation to swindle out of their life savings, their retirement savings, and they won't listen to anybody and stop, then you need to have them leave, right? And, and, and so, I think that's the way to understand what Jesus is saying. It's it's a different thing. When he has a dinner with them, he wants to bring them in. But many don't come. And again, it's a a bright line between the lives in Christ that these people are called to live, and the world around them. I don't know how bright a line it is anymore. Pollsters will tell you they can't find the difference in behavior between Christians and non-Christians. Maybe that will change some over time. But in this world, it was striking. And that is one of the reasons that Christianity grows. Because the pagans knew their world was messed up. They knew they couldn't let their children out. It was violent, over-sexualized. A world in world in which rape just went, well, it was just rampant and ignored. But the Christians led a different kind of life. They led a different kind of life. And all Paul is saying look, if you have somebody who won't live that life, they're in the wrong place. They're not part of this. How you bring that into our world, big challenge, right? Yes, Rich. It's ironic, I think, this is in the book of Matthew, isn't it? It's from Matthew, yes? Matthew himself was a tax collector. Yes. I don't know that, I mean, Matthew accepted the invitation. How many tax collectors didn't? Almost all didn't. (laughs) Right? Understand, very few Jews came running to Jesus after his crucifixion and resurrection. You know, it just, the Christian community was small. I've said, you know, told you that, Rodney Stark's estimate is that at the end of the first century, there were about seven thousand Christians in the Roman Empire. It's about as many as we have here at Saint Andrew. Kind of put, thing, put things in context, huh? So he says the very fact that you have this is verse seven in First Corinthians. The very fact that you have lawsuits among you means you have been completely defeated already. So he's basically saying if you have a dispute with a brother or sister in Christ just go to them and work it out work it out ask some other brother or sister in the house church to mediate between you if you need to but don't go running off to the Roman courts and in the Roman courts guess how they worked just just take a guess how they worked do you think they had any, well, here's how they work. Maybe ours do the same, I don't know, he could tell me. The rich people got all the privileges. The rich people got all the protections. Not the poor people. One of the remarkable things about the Hebrew law courts is that the Hebrew judge was supposed to look after the interests of the weaker party. Not true in the Roman court. So Paul's just saying, just stay out of them. Don't go run to the Roman courts. Work it out. Work it out amongst yourselves. Why not rather, he says, the very fact that, verse 7, I'm sorry, the very fact that you have lawsuits among you means you have been completely defeated already. Why not rather just be wronged? Wow. Patty would tell you, if we were here, I'd be joking with her because she, she, hates to be taken advantage of. I mean with a passion. Hates to be think think that she's being taken advantage of. And then she always has to catch herself and she thinks about Jesus. Yeah, that'll bring you up short, won't it? That'll bring you up short. He says, why not rather be wronged? Why not rather be cheated? Instead you yourselves cheat, you do wrong, you do this to your brothers and sisters. And then I, I see him getting all exasperated, maybe unfairly. Do you not know that wrongdoers will not inherit the kingdom of God? That is not the life to which we are called. It's not the life into which you have been born. Don't deceive yourself. Self-deception is one of the worst things that a person that can happen to a person. We need to be honest with ourselves. Do not deceive yourselves, he says. Don't be neither, again, a list here we get. This is a list. The sexually immoral, the idolaters, adulterers, men who have sex with men, nor thieves, nor the greedy, nor drunkards, nor slanderers, nor swindlers, will inherit the kingdom of God. Coming to the kingdom of God is about coming to a new life. What we do matters. Yes, we are made right with God by God's grace. God forgives our sins. Yes. But how we live matters. How we live matters. Of course it does. I don't say you could read your New Testament and come to any other conclusion than that. And so you get these lists that he puts together of things that um, were, you know, just... Basically, beyond the pale for the Jews and are now beyond the pale for the Christians. Okay? And then in verse 11 he says, and that is what some of you were. Ah. You see, you left that world. You left that life. And now you've come into the body of Christ. That, so that is what some of you were. But you were washed. You were baptized. You were reborn. You were sanctified, made holy. You were justified, made right with God, declared innocent. In the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of our God, which is almost Trinitarian at the end of it there. You see, that's what we're talking about. Where's my slides? Where am I? Okay, here. Here's this slide again. Okay, he's saying this is this is the world you live should be living in now. Don't go back to this one. Don't go back to all the behaviors and stuff in this world. That's what he's saying to them. That they need to see themselves differently. They need to grasp that um, that they have been that they have been reborn. Um, you were washed you were sanctified you were justified righteous in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the spirit of our God wow okay so anything anyone wants to ask or comment before we go on because now he's going to talk, that they, have a, they have a very large sense that they are, they are free. They are free, they're free to do anything. They are free to do what they want. So, translators have to work this out because it's pretty clear that he is responding to things that they say. So if you look at, look at verse 12, you'll see quotation marks, right? So, in the NIV, this is how these translators, because there's no quotation marks in the original Greek. There's nothing. There's no punctuation in the original Greek. It's just blocks of letters, characters. So, the translators have to work this out, and by and large, they tend to agree about this. Okay? Quote, I have the right to do anything, you say. Then Paul says, but not everything's beneficial. It's it's like they're so caught up with their freedom in Christ, they just think it means, well, I can go do whatever I want. And Paul's saying, well, yeah, but don't. (laughs) You're called, you were created to live, you were reborn into a certain kind of life. It's not beneficial to be doing the things that you are doing. You don't even care that this guy is having sex with his father's wife. To put it in the context of how this discussion began. So they say, well, I have the right to do anything. And Paul says, but I will not be mastered by anything. Okay? Paul's only masters Jesus. He's not going to be mastered by his appetites or whatever else it might be. Verse 13, you say, food for the stomach and the stomach for food and God will destroy them both as if none of those things matter, the body or food, but of course the body matters. The Corinthians have this idea that the body doesn't matter. But we kind of have that today. We, we, we live with a lot of Gnostic tendencies in our own world. Gnosticism is, was a, um, uh, a way that valued not the material world, which they saw as weak and broken and and poorly in, poorly formed but um, but it's all about the spiritual, and so the Corinthians will find out really don't even have confidence in their own resurrection, maybe not even jesus's resurrection of the body, because it doesn't matter, and so Paul says. The body, however, is not meant for sexual immorality. God didn't give us bodies so we can turn people into objects. Sexual objects, yes, but other kinds of objects, I, I would say. But certainly sexual objects. Sexuality in the in in, in Scripture is very, it's it's elevated. It comes from Genesis. Chapters 1 and 2. It's not the human version of what our pets do. The body, however, is not meant for sexual immortality, but for the Lord, and the Lord for the body. By His power, God raised the Lord from the dead, and He will raise us also. Do you not know, people, that your bodies are members of Christ Himself? They are part of, we call it the body of Christ, right? Bodies have arms and legs. That's what he means about the members of the body. Arms and legs. Do you not know that your bodies are members of Christ himself? In Christ, in Christ, 80 times used by Paul. We are in Christ, we participate in Christ. And so Paul then says, Shall I then take the members of Christ and unite them with a prostitute? And there he has a very specific mean use of the word porne, prostitute. What he's talking about is there are men in the house churches that are still visiting the prostitutes out there in the pagan world. And this is the biblical view of sex. That when they go to those prostitutes and engage in sex with them, they pull them into the body of Christ. Not just in an idea, but in a very real sense, because the act of human sexuality creates one flesh. That's what he's about to say. And the idea of human sexuality creating one flesh between the man and the woman, one flesh, goes back to, again, the opening two chapters of Genesis. Jesus talks about it. Paul talks about it here. He will talk about it again elsewhere. It was the root understanding of the Jews about human, about human sexuality and creation and the command to be fruitful and multiply. So he says, Shall I then take the members of Christ and unite them with a prostitute? Never! Do you not know that he who unites himself with the prostitute is one with her in body? For it is said, quote, the two will become one flesh. If you see, your, your NIV probably has a footnote at the bottom, says Genesis 2.24. You want to go see it? Let's go see it. <laughs> Turn to Genesis 2.24, because um, another place in Paul, while you're getting there, Genesis 2.24. He tells the husbands in his letter to the Ephesians that how can you abuse your wife, regardless of what, what that entails, physical abuse otherwise. He says, because when you abuse your wives, you're abusing yourself. Why are you abusing yourself? Because you are one flesh. One flesh, one flesh, one flesh. It drives everything the church has always taught about human sexuality and marriage. Okay. Boy, these pages don't want to come. I have This is kind of a new Bible. All right. All right. So it kind of began, uh, just for grins, let's go back up to uh, the to the paragraph above. This is the last portion of verse 20 in Genesis chapter 2. Well, but for Adam no suitable helper was found. So the Lord God, Yahweh God, caused the man to fall into a deep sleep. And while he was sleeping, he took one of the man's ribs and then closed up the place with flesh. And then the Lord God made a woman from the rib He had taken out of the man, and he brought her to the man, and the man said, Whoa, this is now bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman, for she was taken out of man, and that is why a man leaves his father and mother and is united to his wife, and they become one flesh. So the the sexual union... Of a man and a woman, puts back the puts them back into this one flesh, which enables them to be fruitful and multiply for one. Right? Without it, they're both standing there going, "I can't be fruitful and multiply." So, and and it's it's a deeply important and powerful, um, uh, mysterious, in a way. Thing. And here Paul says, you can't go to these prostitutes. You go to them, you have sex with these prostitutes, and you're pulling them into the body of Christ. That's what you're doing. Because these acts, these, these sexual acts that you think are nothing, they're just nothing, they're just like, you know, just just nothing, you know. just It's what you do and then you maybe get to know somebody. Um <laughs> starting to get into social commentary here. For it is said the two will become one flesh. But whoever is united with the Lord is one with him in spirit. Just don't, 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 don't. You've got to see things differently, he says to the Corinthians. So he says, and we're going to finish up this next paragraph, and then we if we Don't have time, we'll come back and talk about it next week. Flee from sexual immorality, the porneia, in the larger sense. All other sins a person commits are outside the body, but whoever sins sexually sins against their own body. Do you not know? And that's it. I would like to talk with Paul about what exactly he means by that sentence. But the next one I get. Do you not know that your bodies? are temples of the holy spirit who is in you whom you have received from god remember earlier we read that the church was was the temple and the god spirit dwelt in the church back in chapter 3 here it is each of us as individuals do you not know that your bodies are temples of the holy spirit he's not talking about what happens At the exercise club right that's not what he's talking about he's talking about God dwelling in us for real for true for actual it's a real deal he's not kidding God isn't kidding it's real do you not know that your bodies are temples of the Holy Spirit who is in you whom you have received from God you are not your own you are not your own you were bought at a price you were bought at a price what do you what do you think he means by that price jesus's death on that cross exactly you were bought at a price therefore honor god with your bodies he's trying with a lot of strength and fervor to help them grasp who they are, reborn into a new human race, who simply is not like and does not live like the world that is anchored in this age of sin, death, and Satan, but instead has moved to the age to come, the age of spirit, And wholeness and resurrection and um, I guess I do think that Hayes has something important to say about the fact that we don't have a strong enough sense of this as a community that we that God's Spirit dwells in the church and that God's Spirit dwells in each of us there's a um, I can't tell that story cuz I can't remember her name. <laughs> Christian novelist woman, 20th century. From the south. Ringing a bell with anybody? What? Oh no, older. Huh? No. Oh well. Anyway, never mind. So she she <laughs> she wrote this short story about, about or maybe it was in one of her novels, about this girl who's in, this this is in the South, and this girl is basically been out with this boy, and she is, he is really pressing her to like, do it. (laughs) (laughs) Okay? Yeah. And in the novel, she just keeps saying to herself, you know, my body, is a temple of God. My body is a temple of God. My body is yeah. a temple of God. And she, you know, fended him off and went on her way. But um, these are teachings that are easy to pay lip service to. They're easy to read or we affirm them. And, but it's, I think it's a whole other thing to really take them in and the implications of it. The implications that God's Spirit dwells in each of us it's why you're not gonna tell God something God doesn't already know how you treat yourself how you treat your own body matters you can be your own victim Um, and it all matters to God because you have been reborn in Christ. And that sense of differentness, that's not even a word, difference from the larger world around us is probably something that we need to, to regain. Because it certainly doesn't characterize most of my church life um, over the course of, of my lifetime. Okay, so, that's all we're going to read today. We'll pick up and talk about marriage and stuff next week. So let me see if there's any questions or anything I can answer for you. Yes, Anne. Mm. Yeah, see, Anne, it's talking about compartmentalization. I mean, that's honestly... I've told you, I told you a few weeks ago about my story, okay? So for much of my life in the church, I was in the church every Sunday, sang in the choir, but I led a very compartmentalized life. There was my Sunday morning church life, there was choir, and the rest of the time, I never thought about it, honestly. Just didn't. Just didn't. Should've, didn't. Um, it's, it's not like I was out there swindling people out of their money and a drunkard and all the rest of this list. But now I know the difference in the way I see myself, the way I see others, the way I think I treat others. Um, and, and we aren't called to live compartmentalized. There's nothing here about living a compartmentalized life. This is a life that Paul wants to bring wholeness to, shalom, wholeness to, peace and wholeness. and, and and, and not have them begin to say, oh, well, I'm going to run off to the temple for a little sex, or I'm going to go to the courts and settle this, these disputes or whatever. No, this is, this is your community. This is your life. Other things anybody wants to add in these challenging paragraphs? You mentioned earlier that slaves could not marry other slaves. Yes. Does that mean that they could never marry, or how does that work? Well... A lot of slaves, particularly in the cities, would work towards being freed people, okay? But, yes, it would mean that they would never, so, but they have, today, what do we call them? In some states they have common law marriage, okay? So that's sort of a modern-day equivalent of something where a relationship becomes something that begins to look like marriage and might be treated a little bit like marriage. But we have much clearer legal distinctions, okay? Um, in our world, about uh, around marriage, in the ancient world, they had they were so class, so class driven, and um, they had seven or eight different kinds of things that begin to resemble marriage, but then have their own sets of rules about inheritances and the rest of it. So it was just just different than ours, and that makes it a challenge sometimes to to just think about, read this, because we just think about it all in terms of our world. Of course we do. I get that. Of course we do. So, did Paul have, were there many slaves in the house churches then, or were they not allowed in, or...? Slaves were in the house churches. There were slaves who were Christians, right? Probably proportionally, pro- I'd bet a higher proportion than in the larger community. There were a lot of slaves in the Roman Empire, okay? Um. But you know what would happen? When it came time to have the Lord's Supper, the richer people didn't want to eat with those slaves and poor people. And it made that made Paul's head spin on his shoulder. I'm going to talk about that a little bit on class in class on, on, in my Sunday class this week. Um, he can't he just he just he wants to shake them. We're going to get to that because that comes from 1 Corinthians 13 um and it is it's not the life to which these people were called to which they have been reborn into and Paul is very insistent with them that yes you need yes remember who you are remember who you are that's an interesting question. So, I, what I hear there is a question like, well, okay, so let's say there were, two, there were two slaves in the church. Might they be married in the eyes of God, but not worrying about the Roman law? I don't know the answer to that. That's interesting. That might be the case. I don't know, I've got, got, got a couple books on marriage in the ancient world. I'll, I'll try to find an answer to that, because that's... I'm inclined to think the answer will be yes, if I can find it. Because it would fit with what we were just reading, wouldn't it, in a way? Anything else? All you good people. <laughs> okay. So now, all of us gathered here, all of us temples of God's Spirit, right? The Holy Spirit dwells in all of us, individually and in the church. We're gonna go out today and let the world see that about us, right? You sometimes feel like you can't just fall back and remind yourself, yes, the Holy Spirit dwells in me, whether I feel like it or not. You don't have to feel like it. That's the thing. It's an objective truth. An objective truth. You don't have to feel like it. Because there are days I don't. But it's still true. It's still true. Would you pray with me? Gracious Lord, as we leave here today, wow, Sometimes Paul is just so hard and so challenging and we don't really know what to do. We don't know how to bring this to our world. We It just seems foreign. But help us to, to bridge some of this. Help us to hear Paul. That indeed we are, that indeed your Spirit dwells in each of us. That indeed we are truly brothers and sisters in Christ. Help us. And that we are called to live lives of kindness and compassion and not treat people as objects, and not swindle people, and not steal. and All of these things we know don't characterize, should not characterize Christians, and just May your Spirit lift us up every day in this, and may we live every day in the knowledge that we are genuinely brothers and sisters in Christ, members of his body, and we are grateful for that. All this we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.